Welcome to The Pursuit of Life, where we share inspirational and action-focused stories to help you live a life of adventure. Proudly presented by Knightswood House. Now, please welcome your host, David Hazelwood. We're joined today by Keith Bateman, who is a multiple world record holder. He's the author of a book, Older Yet Faster. And as I say, he's a holder of five male 55-year-old world records ranging from the 1,500 metres through to the 10K. We'll talk to him about uh, his running journey and where he's gone, but the book Older Yet Faster gives you a little bit of an idea about that. So, um, Keith, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. That's all right. Now, I'm going to take you back to uh, the dim, distant past. One of the questions that I always like to ask of people on the show is, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, That's a very good question. I don't think I had any idea. I was well into, from about 15 or so, I was well into skiing, actually, surprisingly. I was working on an artificial slope back near London, and I was ski racing around there and on the plastic slopes around the place. And uh, after that, when I went to college, I I ended up helping out and then instructing and that sort of thing. So that's really what I was into, the skiing game. And uh, I really had no thoughts of the future I would just earn lots of money in the summer, part of the winter working on the ski slope. And then I'd go away skiing for six weeks and I'd come back and hope I found a job. And that's what I did for a number of years, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so Was I, that in the UK? You were, you were doing that? Or? That, was in the, that was in the UK, yeah. And I'd go off to Europe, to Switzerland, and mostly with friends, yeah, for six weeks, eight weeks. Yeah. And living at home, earning lots of money and spending it all on skiing. Which was fun. Yes, yeah, like a tough gig. <laughs> yeah, I did. I remember. I remember at, at school, I looked at um, at something in the maths line dealing with statistics, maths, and uh, uh, in in the financial world. I think I can't remember the oh, name I'm looking for. You know? Actuarial. Yeah, actuary. That's the one. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, actuarial work. But no, I'm glad I never went there. I probably was nowhere near good enough at, at the maths anyway. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah, so so I didn't really answer your question, uh, except uh, actuarial work uh, was what I did think of when I was about 14 or 15, but uh, fortunately I never went there. No, fantastic. Okay. (laughs) I know you're working as a running coach now and uh, and obviously you're an author too, but what other jobs did you end up doing and how did you come out to Australia? Oh, well, (laughs) I know that's a... Yeah, that's an interesting one. Well, for a number of years, I, I went skiing, I came back, I went to an agency who found me usually the same job working for the Department of Employment in the UK, a very boring but well-paid job on the census. One year I came back and they said, oh, we don't need anybody anymore. They said, what about computer operating? I said, oh, I'll give it a go. So I started working for a company called Unilever Computer Services, very American style expected too much of people basically and had to wear a suit in those days and, and it was crazy stuff. Anyway, so I got fed up there after a year and I, I got a job with Rolls-Royce, also computer operating on the, the new IBM 370s machines <laughs> running on DOS 4, I think. Anyway, so I did that for a year and then um, by that time I'd met somebody and I was married and I became a programmer there. I don't know how I passed the aptitude test because 
later on, I read a very honest reference which said Keith will only ever make an average programmer, which I have to say was was probably absolutely correct. Anyway, so and then we got fed up work, living around London and thought, is this life? You know, go to work, come home, have a mortgage, and that. My wife then and I decided that we would just sell up and we'd move to Scotland. So uh, we moved to Scotland to an uninhabitable house, moved in on the 28th of December in uh, deep snow with no heating. And she ran a ski school, ski hire, and I instructed. And that's how we started off in Scotland. That continued from 1979 until 2000. That's my midlife crisis, I suppose I'd have to say. And during that time, uh, we started our own business uh, running, first of all, a a bike hire in the summer. Then we went into ski, uh, cross-country ski equipment. And then uh, we started running packages through the ski school I was then chief instructor for. And then we started our own ski school and then we started running holidays. So it all sort of developed. So we were running ski package holidays for people where we uh, we organized the instruction, hire, lift pass, accommodation, etc. And that was really the case until almost the late 1990s when the snow really started to get bad and we started to hive off parts of the business so that we would just take the bookings basically and manage this situation. But so that was it really until about 2000. Yeah, you asked why I came to Australia. Well, um, yeah, there was a, a bit of a problem in the marriage and I actually moved over here. I met somebody else, moved over here. And that's how I got to Australia in 2000, around the time of the Olympics. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and then when I came to Australia, I didn't, <laughs> didn't have a job. I had to do something. So I got back into um, computer programming or internet uh, website work to tide me over. That was my initial job when i was here yeah oh wow and so you just missed the uh the y2k whole thing out here as well then uh well i actually went home while it was on i came over i came out here for a, a sort of a trial period and then um i went home just beforehand to really get everything sorted out like properties and, and things like that and, and then i came back in um after you know, i think uh october after the games had finished mm-hmm. yeah okay and now, if we talk about your um, your running, you I understand you didn't start running really until your um, your early to mid thirties. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think I was twenty nine. While I was uh, downhill skiing, I was doing a lot of cross country skiing as well, just in the woods and uh, and uh, on the mountain as well, actually. And I reckoned I was pretty reasonable uh, at that, but I wasn't. So I thought I would have a go at the cross-country ski races in the winter. And so I entered a fun run in the summer and I went quite well and I I quite enjoyed it. So I did what I recommend people don't do now. And I entered a marathon straight away um, and started training for that. I did try the cross-country skiing, but being passed with big army guys, double polling, going straight up the hills that I was struggling on, uh, yeah, I thought it, it isn't for me, the cross-country skiing. So, But I carried on running. So that was that was it, really. Um, and I, I did a marathon. I did a marathon the next month. <laughs> and I the next month? The next month, yes. And I just kept doing marathons. And then I found somebody, a young guy who who was um, running as well and learning to drive. And he practices driving, driving me to a running track. And uh, that's how I found a running track. I joined a joined a club and... And then got into hill racing as well in Scotland, and all that really carried on until 2000, till I came to Australia. Yeah, okay. And how did it come about that you 
the whole thing about the older yet faster and having been able to improve your your running to such a degree kind of the mid mid 40s on yeah well it was more the 50s actually so what happened was i was running on basically on my own in scotland i did join a, a track club but they were 50 kilometers away and i had a, a running partner for the hill races who was much better than me a, a hill farmer actually who was really good at going up the hills but was very slow on the on the level so i didn't really have a good training base it was really just thrashing it out and um and getting lots of uh, the usual injuries. Uh, when I came to Australia, I'd put on uh, about 10 kilos, I think, and uh, I decided I had to get fit. So I went for a run and I saw some guys in running tops. They happened to be Sydney Striders tops. So I ran up next to them and said, oh, hi guys, do you run every week? And they said, yeah, come and join us. So I started running with them and then the Sydney Striders and then I found some people to compete with and started to, um, to improve. Yeah, in, when I was... In Scotland, my best 10K was 36 minutes, 36. I nearly killed myself for that time. And when I got some competition and then I found a coach in 2003, I started running against a younger guy and we would battle it out. And uh, one week I'd get a 36.15 in a one month in a striders race. Then he'd come along and get a 36.05. And then we got it down to, I think, 35, 34 something maybe. And, you know, I was really thrashing myself, but I was getting all the typical overstriding injuries like runner's knee, ITB, hip flexor pain. I thought I had a hernia. I went to the doctor. It was just hip flexor pain from, from running badly, basically. And, yeah, so that's what happened there. And um, I think it was about – I was watching I, – I, the, the squad I joined, Sean Williams' squad in 2003, had some future Olympians in it. And lots of good runners. It was his so-called elite squad that I was running with in the afternoons. And I, I was watching them, having been a ski instructor and very interested in the mechanics of it all. I was trying to work out what, what they were doing and how it all worked. Um, and then a friend of mine, uh, Dimitri, suddenly ran past me looking different. And um, he had been to see a biomechanist. And then I thought, well, I'll go and see him as well. Turns out actually later that my wife also independently, my now wife now, uh, Heidi actually went to see him as well. Yeah, he did change me, and I have to thank him for that. But the thing I noticed about it was it was an extremely complicated study. The angles of hip drop, angle of my knee at this point and that point, and a whole lot of information, which really didn't, didn't mean anything because the basic thing I realized was I was sticking my leg out in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the only thing I realized that you could do wrong is to either lift or swing your leg forward so that when you land, it lands in front of you. And that really is the only problem in running. If you don't do that, everything else, like young kids running, everything else actually comes together. I know that's a very simplistic view of it, but, but it really is the physics of it is if your foot is pressing on the ground behind you, you're accelerating. If it's pushing on the ground in front of you, you're braking. And if, it's, if you're running at constant speed, you want somewhere in between the two. So I had quite a big overstride and a heel strike as well. He got me to lift my knees, which is something I recommend you don't do. But it did stop me reaching out uh, as much. I still had an overstride, but it, was, uh, uh, it wasn't as bad. But it was very hard work lifting my knees. Um, so anyway, so um, I basically carried on from there. It did improve me. A little bit, I think, on times, but most of it was really me very, very heavy training. 
and I think I got my times down to something like 33 or just even under a little bit under 33 minutes for 10k and I was doing I was training uh, Tuesdays Thursdays Saturdays two-hour run on Sunday a uh, an easy hour run on a Monday an, an easy hour and a half run on a Wednesday and a half hour run on a Friday as I recall and the sessions were very hard like we were doing seven 1K reps on a four-minute cycle. So you started your 1K rep every four minutes. And some of these guys, I remember I remember one occasion where um, Ben St. Lawrence and two others, I can't remember who they were, Harry, oh, Harry Summers and uh, another guy from Western Australia or South Australia were running. And I was, I was running, I managed to get down to 3.8, 3.10 K. And I was coming down the home straight and they were walking across the field ready to start the next one. So they, <laughs> I do recall they did seven uh, 1K reps at two minutes 40, and then they speeded up for the last two. So it was a pretty impressive group to be running with, yeah. So I think that's why, you know, my time's improved down to uh, sort of sub 33. But I was getting injured. That was the problem. I was getting a runner's knee and ITB and hip flexor pain and shin splints, I remember, and uh, all, all these things. But what happened then was my, my coach, Sean Williams, said, look, I, I think you should start coaching because I was men- mentoring a lot of the younger boys in the group. They were you know, 14, 15-year-olds. They couldn't catch me when they first joined the group, but then they soon caught up with me and I had to you know, had to push them on because I was their target. And, and I'd say, to say, no, hang on, no, I'm not your target. I was your target, but those guys up there in front are your target. So you know, to push them on. And he said, look, I'm getting too many privates here. Why don't you start coaching? So... So I started that about seven years ago, and that's when I really started to learn about technique, actually trying to help other people, to coach other people to, to you try things out, it doesn't work, you wondered why it doesn't work, you think about it, um, try it again. And by that time, I'd met my now wife, Heidi, who's a podiatrist and also was a top runner when she was younger. And uh, she helped me out with the anatomy. Uh, we actually co-authored the book. She helped me out with the, all the anatomy and uh, really working out what was, uh, what was going on. So that's it, really. So, you know, I, de- I developed a, a, a very simple system of teaching. It, it really is basic physics, nothing complicated. And as simple as what I said just a few minutes ago there, that, you know, if your foot is pressing on the ground behind you, you're accelerating or falling over, possibly. Um, but we assume you're accelerating when you're running. Uh, and if your foot is pressing on the ground in front of you, which there must be some of when you're running, then you're, you're, you're breaking. And so the art is in reducing the amount you're pressing on the ground in front of you, basically what we're looking for is trying to get you to get a landing where the force is basically downward. And, and it's easy to do. And the good thing about that is, number one, you cut down your overstride because your foot lands closer and closer and closer to underneath you. It can't land underneath you unless you're stationary, of course. If you landed your foot underneath you when you were running, you'd fall on your nose. So it does actually have to touch the ground in front of you, but it's a matter of how far in front of you and how hard it's hitting the ground. Basically, the further in front, the harder it will be. So the answer is to get yourself landing in a more vertically aligned position so that the foot lands less far in front of you, which instantly improves your speed. But then there's a very key moment. It's a very critical line you cross that if your foot lands just a margin further ahead of that line in front of you, you you break a little bit, you absorb, and then you have to push off to replace the speed that you've just lost through the braking. But if your foot lands just a little bit closer to you than that, what happens is there's almost no braking 
that's not the significant part. The significant part is when you're near vertically aligned, uh, your legs become very spring-like and you actually spring backstroke bounce off the ground. It doesn't look like a something bounce, like a ball bouncing, but it's included in your takeoff um, is this lift off the ground. So your hips go off the ground a little bit higher and that's how you get your stride length. Your, it's your existing speed, less any braking, which is minimal, plus any height off the ground. So something is basically freewheeling. If, if something, a body moving forwards is going to continue moving forwards unless you stop it. And if you have minimal braking, according to Harvard University and uh, Smithsonian, there's, a, there's a, a pretty good video on that. They've measured 50% spring effect, 50% of the force of landing is returned to you in basically free energy. Your, your calves, hamstrings, glutes bounce you back off the ground again. And that's where, that's where good runners get their, their stride lengths from. So that's really basically what we're doing. We're, we're, um, and, and that's how my system has developed over seven years to a very simple, basically, we've got people on a Facebook group doing this at the moment. They're spending, they're spending half an hour on lesson one. It should really just be five minutes. You know, it's, it's 15 minutes to actually learn what you should be doing. Yeah. And then you have to go and, and practice and keep finding cues to keep yourself balanced when you land. And that's going to be a, a process. But the actual realizing, changing your brain and realizing what you should be doing and feeling what it should be like is done stationary and almost stationary. And then over the next probably a year or maybe even a year and a half, you are gradually improving your times, but getting uh, more precise and as you get more precise the right muscles build up for you to do it for longer and then when you can do it for longer you get more practice so you become more precise it's a it's a vicious circle you get better so that's the the basic thing um but yeah sorry i went on about uh, how we actually do it but uh, the biggest problem is you need to be patient um, yeah. you can change your action your basic action very very quickly uh and like you know half an hour or or, or less but you're using a different group of muscles. And so you've got to build them up. Absolutely. I had one client, Neil Berry, very good runner. I think he was, he was running 30 minutes for 10K. And he had the same coach as me, Sean. And we, we talked about running it, doing a session with me to see what we could do. And he did one session with me with five weeks before a 10K race. And of course, being a, a runner who can run 30 minutes for 10k there's not much i'm going to change yeah. however when he did his race he said after six kilometers his calf muscles felt like they were exploding so a very very small change in his balance had in introduced uh, more use of a certain part of his calf muscles uh, and we learned a great deal from that you know we thought five weeks before a race he would be fine but a very small change is um you know, yeah, make a significant uh, difference. Massive difference. Yeah, so you have to cut people back to 2K. You go out and do a 2K run, and then you see what the DOMS is like, you know, delayed onset muscle soreness. And some people couldn't have that for two or three months of sore, so they might only get up to do running three or 4K at a time. And some days, they'll need two days off in between. But the good thing is, once that muscle is built up, it's there for good. yeah. So that's that's a that's a big problem we have to we have to watch for calf muscles and Achilles tendons partly because they've usually the Achilles tendon has usually been shortened by wearing uh, shoes with a raised heel uh, elevated at the back a drop whatever you want to call it because that actually shortens the Achilles tendon and it is the Achilles tendon and the calf muscle which give you the lift off the ground mostly. Um, 
Yeah, okay. Yeah. And you've got to adjust everyone's expectations around that as well. That's right, yes, yeah. So the first thing we do is put them in thin, flat, flexible shoes or barefoot if you can on an oval or something like that, ideal for learning. Get the precision from that, the strength from that, and then go back into shoes. That's the best way to do it. Most people keep shoes on, of course. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So given what you've done in terms of, um, you know, kind of the records you've set and things like that, I mean, what's what would be the most the accomplishment you're most proud of out of all of those? You know, five world records, what is it, 38? state age group records, 15 Australian age group records. I mean, that's, that's a pretty impressive roll call. Uh, yes, very happy as they kept building up over a couple of years. I think my best race ever and probably will be my best race ever was the 10,000 metres state championship. I remember I, I think I came ninth in the open you know, uh, event and that was 31.51.86. I was hoping, hoping I might get under 31. I think my best was 32, 32.29 point something because the world record was 32.29.5 or something like that. And I traveled down to Melbourne in an evening to run and uh, there was nobody much in the race and I was in second place most of the time and I missed the record by, I think, 0.2 of a second something like that. <laughs> and then I came up to Sydney in uh, months later and I uh, ran with a, a group of youngsters. There was about five of us in the pack. And uh, it just felt as if I was floating along. I just got my technique absolutely right. And I was obviously very fit. And yeah, I can't see that ever happening again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did you, I mean, you were mentioning before we started that you've, um, you've actually had a few issues over the last couple of years as well. It's kind of slowed things down. Yeah, yeah, little things, nothing serious like before, but I've had uh, varicose veins in my left leg only. It was first recognised when I went for the, the computer job in 1977, I think it was, and they said, oh, you've got varicose veins. Oh, have I? You know. Anyway, they got, they got worse over the years, and what was happening was my leg was aching, and my left leg was always heavy, felt heavy, and my left ankle was stiffer. And so I decided to get them treated with the intention of loosening off that ankle which it did so i had i think i had eight treatments because i apparently my body's very good at repairing <laughs> so um it kept it kept repairing they would destroy the veins and then uh, try to uh, they use a they don't cut them anymore no they they run a laser up the leg for the main vein and they fry you uh, they fry you from the inside that seemed to work well um but then for the smaller ones they inject some sort of detergent and it, it makes the uh, makes the veins sort of crumple up and get smaller. And uh, it's quite painful, actually. So I think I had a good number of treatments of that because every time I went back, they said, oh, no, that's opened up a bit again. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so I had that. but And that made a tremendous difference. I became more flexible in my left foot, which was good, much nearer to where my right foot was. But I started getting, I had um, Achilles tendonitis in my left leg. And I presume that's because I had more flexibility and I was doing too much too soon. And then I started getting calf problems over a period. But I was working for school. So I was running on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays with the boys (laughs) Uh, and doing some training myself. So I think I was just overdoing it. But, yeah, that's gone on for a a couple of years, recurrent uh, Achilles tendonitis and uh yeah and also i was running trying to warm it up and running oh that'd be all right but no that we advise against that it just prolongs something that should last uh you know a month it prolongs it to two years um 
Oh, well, you know, so uh, that's one of the things we say in the book, you know, don't, whatever you do, don't warm up. A, if your tendon is sore, don't run, don't warm it up. It will warm up, but you'll still be damaging it and you won't notice. So, so anyway, so yes, that, that's right. I'm, hopefully I'm over all that now. I still managed a couple of park runs at uh, 17 minutes, 17, 10, 17, 12. So, you know, and that was on 25k a week. So I am running well. We just need to get to the training. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay. Do you wish you could do more with your money? Knightswood House is a financial advisory firm that specialises in working with successful business professionals who share a passion for endurance sports or other adventures. People often come to us for one of three reasons. One, they aren't where they imagined they'd be financially at this point in their life. Two, they feel frustrated that they are earning good income but aren't doing more with it. And three, they are concerned that they don't have a strategy to make the lifestyle they're working so hard for feasible, both now and in the years ahead. Underlying all of these are nagging doubts about the future and a concern that they aren't maximising the opportunities created by their hard work. We have a nine-step process we take you through, which will simplify your financial affairs and take much of the hassle out of your hands, provide you with certainty that the strategy you choose to implement is right for you, and finally, get rid of those nagging doubts and give you confidence that you are on track to achieving the things that are most important to you. Ultimately, we can help you leverage your professional achievements into financial success so you can enjoy a life that is truly remarkable. For more details, head to knightswood.com.au. Okay, back to the show. So what, I'm assuming you can get back to, you know, that that all settles down and you can get back to full fitness and full training. I mean, what's... um what are the sort of the, the challenges you've got in mind of going after? Uh, well, certainly the 60 world records, but <laughs> I, I'm running really well and I do feel I can go much faster than that. I think I can get sub nine minutes for the uh, 3K, um, I think, in a year, with a year's six or seven months good training. The 60 record is 9.29. I've actually hit that in training a couple of years ago unintentionally. So I'm pretty confident that I can if I can get a good training in and not injure myself uh, in other ways, then, yeah, I think, I think the first thing I'll be going for is a 3K. So that's 9, 9.29 is the target there for the record. But I do feel I can go much faster. Hmm. We'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. Um, but certainly, certainly running well, um, I have no problem. I mean, I, I just went out for a little jog and I ended up running up. I think the average was 4.10 I started off and it was quite hilly and I started off at 5.50 a K or something like that, you know. So the speed builds up. Yeah, it, just... It's not a problem. Speed is not a problem. It's just maintaining it that, that's the problem. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so... It's a nice problem to have that one. It, it is actually. We do find that with our clients, with our book readers and that. what we, They say, what about speed? We say, well, forget about it. You're, you're going to be, once you get your technique right, you actually don't slow down very much. And you start to run out of breath and look at the watch and say, oh, dear, if you're going on a long run, you have to watch that. Yeah, okay. So it's just the lack of the lack of braking. You know, if you don't brake, you don't slow down. You get this rebound from being in the right position. You're trying to get off the ground as high as you can, but without effort. Uh, so it's not pushing off your toes. It's, it's using your whole foot. Uh, your whole foot is supporting you and your Achilles tendon, your calf muscle, your hamstrings and your glutes. 
are all working together and, and basically bouncing you off the ground. But doing that with such little braking and being so efficient, you do tend to increase speed and start to get out of breath. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing to have. Yeah. And we've mentioned the book a couple of times now, but I understand that you that was only launched towards the end of last year. Is that correct? Uh, yes, in o- October. We did actually have the book out, which is the same basic book, our first attempt in um, uh, four years ago, 2014. And it did go very well. But what happened, and, were, and what's still happening, in fact, is a lot of readers, we were in communication with readers, and there was one particular one that we followed called David Blackman. Actually, on the website, you'll find a link to his blog. He blogged. I met him in Southampton in the UK when my wife and I were there. I actually met him recently when I went back out again. And it's actually a little funny story here because I turned up at the track. I, I emailed them as I was in the area and said, would you mind if I came and joined your Tuesday night training? He said, oh, yeah, sure, came. So I turned up and my, my hair's white and um, I didn't have any shoes on. And David Blackman's coach, who was a great 800-meter runner uh, uh, representing the UK, said to me, and we laughed about this in December when I saw him, but said to me, um, now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the track. I said, oh, I've been on track before. He said, uh, but don't worry if you can't keep up, just do what you can do, you know, miss out laps, no problem at all. And uh, I was in reasonable shape, pretty good shape, actually. And they were doing 500 reps. And I actually then did have Atlee's tendon problem. And I, I only did about four. But I was doing them in 123 uh, with the boys at the front. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and Heidi was going pretty well with the other uh, the other ones as well. So he was very embarrassed. He obviously knew that I knew how to run on the track. And I spoke to him in December this year. We had dinner together. And uh, anyway, that was that was quite funny. It's was, it was, it was nice to do that sort of thing. But David Blackman uh, decided that day, uh, we gave him a copy of our book, which was newly out. Uh, oh, it had been out for a while. And uh, he decided uh, at the age of 51, I think, or yeah, 49 or something like that, to change his technique. And he did it and he blogged it and we were in contact with him all the time and we saw the mistakes he made. And so we noted all those mistakes so that when we did the second edition of the book, we could use his experience and others and my clients and Heidi's patients, podiatry patients, we could use the experience from all those to make sure that other that we were even clearer in the book about what to do and how to do it and what not to do. So that was absolutely excellent and i had refined my sessions made them much simpler cut out things that weren't necessary and uh, simplified it all and then uh, very interestingly i must give uh, a friend credit for this i was in the cafe with the book printed out in a4 and reading through it and uh, somebody who lived in the same block as me then looked over my shoulder and said oh what are you up to and i said oh i'm just editing this book and he from a distance pointed to the word obliquus which I don't know whether you know, it has two U's next to each other in it. And he said, oh, that word's spelt wrong. And I said, oh, whoa, whoa, come and help. <laughs> so he was a non-runner, but um, his uh, language skills are excellent. So we spent four years with him in cafes. I-, I did very stressfully working with him, which is very pedantic, and using another editor as well, who is a, who is a running client of mine, to reorganize the book completely. Uh, and when we'd finished that, we put it to uh, yet another editor who was a scientific government editor down in Canberra and quite um, happily spent a lot of money on on, uh, on getting it uh, very, very well put together with uh, making it more of a, 
Uh, Heidi wanted it as a podiatrist, wanted it to be more of a manual. So, you know, all the illustrations are listed in the back, the list of exercises, a glossary, kilometers to miles conversion, because we realized that we were talking kilometers per mile. And a lot of our book readers were uh, UK and American and didn't necessarily work with that. And we've indexed it, all that sort of thing. And we were able, Heidi was able to put in case studies and do a section for podiatrists because, uh, and I put in a section for coaches because a lot of coaches were taking on all the things I, I was doing. So yeah, it, it really has become a manual really with things like just open up page here, exercise 13. It's all nicely in the scientific manner listed out. So all the exercises are by chapter number and exercise number. So 13.3 is chapter 13, exercise three. And that's for fixing runner's knee and medial meniscus pain. That's uh, from Heidi's point of view. So, so what we have is we basically have what bad technique is and the injuries it causes, then what good technique is, and then basically how to how to run, what should happen on your run, things like uh, well yeah what what should happen on your run that you check afterwards or what you should be doing, and then we've got maintaining good form. So there's a whole chapter on simple cues to put yourself right. So we we we. When we're going for a run, we've got basically this is how you should start off to make sure your form is as good as it can be when you start moving. Then there's a couple of low speed checks you can do just to make sure you're right. And then once you're running, here are some more checks you can work through to find out what works. Because in the first lesson, you know what the feeling should be, that your whole foot should be supporting you. You get that feeling from the beginning and you, you're trying to recreate it during your run. So we got, we got that, and you need to strengthen up as well. So Heidi's got a whole section on uh, strengthening from the podiatry point of view. And then there's a whole section uh, after that on rehab in case it goes wrong. And another section on uh, just before that on uh, your transition and what you should expect over the year or so that it takes you based on David's uh, and other people's experience. So it's, it's, it's very comprehensive. It's basically how to run. And then there's uh, we've got a bit on uh, tips and traps, all these common things that people are told to do, which basically uh, are silly according to physics. So, uh, there's one uh, one thing people, I saw someone the other day, um, just trying to fall forwards. There's one something, I think it might be pose running or something, it says gravity falling, which is just ridiculous. You know, if you, you can't constantly fall, if you, yeah. <laughs> if you, if you start your run standing up and you finish your run standing up, then the amount you're falling forwards has got to be the amount you're leaning back. Yep. And there's, there's no there's no way around it, you know, if you start and finish in the same position. And yet these people try to, to keep falling forwards. And what happens is there's only two things they can do. They can either bend the torso forwards from the waist, in which case they'll be sticking their leg out in front of them underneath in a nice big overstride. Uh, or they kick their feet up the back, the balance of their body is tilting forwards, which is what this other lady, there's only two choices, really, yeah, and they both are bad. And things like um, a lot of people are told they're overstriding and they're getting injured, so they're told to do more steps, shorter ones. So they end up doing 180, whatever they think they should be doing, shorter overstrides. So they end up running like an ever-ready bunny. Yeah. So, you know, these are, that idea is based on walking. The length of your step multiplied by the number of steps equals the distance you travel. But that doesn't account for the flight phase. So people with a, a slow cadence are generally sticking their leg out well in front of them in a big overstride. They break, absorb, and then they have to push hard to replace the, the speed they've just lost. So they're leaning back a long way when they land, and they're taking off a long way forwards when they take off. And that takes time. 
And so they're on the ground for a long time and they've got a slow loping cadence. Making the same action many more times, but less of action is not going to help. And what we find with our clients is we forget about cadence completely, but what actually happens is the cadence increases because they land and take off. They don't land, absorb, wait till they catch up with the foot and then push off the ground. They land and they take off because they're near vertical. So their cadence automatically increases. And also their stride length increases because they fly further. So it's not cadence or stride length. You can actually in- increase the bow and your speed at the yeah. same time. Yeah, I hope that's, you know, I think that yeah, okay. people understand that. So it is your, uh, the distance you travel is your stride length multiplied by your number of strides. But both of those are variable. And the, var- the main, main thing you're trying to do is increase your stride length. But you don't do it by stretching out more or even, you know, reduce it by stretching out less. What you do is by landing properly and then you bounce and you fly. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. And how, I mean, obviously, you you wrote the book with Heidi, and um, yeah, you know, you you worked for a long time on it with her. How do you find? You know, obviously, it's a it's a very strong relationship, and there's you guys both obviously enjoy uh, and are able to spend uh, that time together and enjoy working together. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's 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 great. She's actually very competitive because you know if we're running, going up the we go often go for a swim after we've had a run. I've had a run with her, and uh, she'll do things like hand me all the wet swimming gear in a bag, and then zoom off up the road and try to out sprint me, which is <laughs> 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 she's not got me yet. But uh, you know she's uh, she's fun. Yeah, she's fun. Um, she's actually oh. running very very nicely and uh, completely opposite to what she was taught at podiatry school uh, and she, her treatment is basically just about uh, all her running problems are shoe related the first thing to do is to get the patients out of shoes that have a raised heel or soft spongy turned up toe box area that's what basically causes or, or, or narrow shoes causing morton's neuroma the effective curve of a shoe with the the toe box turned up. They, you know, if you look at it on a shelf, they don't touch the ground. Yeah, and yep. and a, a standard ten millimeter drop in the shoe front to back, which opens up the metatarsals, puts the pressure onto that metatarsal area, and then um, also if you, if you raise the heel, you push the knees forward. So <laughs> when you land, you're not going to be vertical. You're going to be in a, a you're going to be bent, mm. which is not. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, all those things affect the feet. Uh, her basic treatment is to get people into thin, flat, flexible shoes for running and for day use. And then she has this very excellent foot program, which seems to fix everything. Basically strengthens the feet and gives them mobility and wakes up the, the intrinsic muscles at the front foot. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's never failed to fix Morton's neuroma. It's never failed to fix plantofasciitis. It's uh, oh, well, because that's that's a big thing that I've I've had a, a bunch of friends um, suffer from. Yeah, well, the first thing is to get them out of chunky shoes and get them barefoot or or as near to that as possible. Because uh, as we've got actually a, 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 a diagram in the picture of what they call what the podiatrists call the windlass test, which is basically pulling the toes up of the foot. If somebody if they think someone's got plantar fasciitis, they'll pull their toes up and. Uh, what they call uh, dorsiflex the foot, that's toes up towards the knee. And then they'll push underneath. And if the patient hits the roof, said, oh, yeah, that looks like uh, plantar fasciitis. 
But shoes actually, these chunky shoes actually put you in that position all the time. They raise your heel and they turn up your toes. Yeah, okay. And so they stress the plantar fascia. Even when you're standing still, your plantar fascia is being stretched and stressed. And then, of course, you come to run in them. And you've really no choice when you land in a shoe that is trying to make you run downhill all the time because it's angled down. You have to brake. That's one simple way of looking at it. But if your foot's flat on the ground, your knees are forward, you're in a semi-squat position. But generally what happens is it encourages a heel strike, which is a, always going to be an overstride. So your heel lands first, and then you come crunching down on top of it in a sort of a, over, a bent over position. But the act of the heel hitting and then you levering your foot down is putting even more stress, like multiple times uh, what it is when you're standing on the plantar fascia. Mm. And uh, quite honestly, get rid of those shoes and learn to run well. And uh, these problems disappear. Yeah, mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah, so, um, yeah, shoes and uh, exercise the feet. <laughs> yeah, okay. I just wanted to ask a couple of other things of you. So, yeah, please. You know, one of the things is, is obviously the, the amount of time and, uh, yeah, and financial commitment and all the rest of it that goes into running or, or anything like that that you want to pursue at the level that you have. What else have you had to sacrifice to, to pursue those goals? Well, nothing really. No, we fit it all in. I mean, Heidi's been a runner since she was seven, and so uh, there's no problem. You know, if I want to get up early, she's not training. I'll get up early at 5.30 and go for a run. It's great. Go for it. It's perfect, actually, from that point of view. Yeah. And uh, being, I, I, I coach for uh, Sydney Grammar School cross country and also track. So if I miss training in the morning, I can always train with the boys. Since I decide what the session is, <laughs> I can train with the boys uh, in the afternoon. So uh, yeah, it, it fits in very well. So you've just been able to organise your life, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm very lucky that I met Heidi, and we've worked things out this way. So um, yeah financially it's not i mean the school paid me well which is excellent and my own sessions are fairly highly priced heidi made me hard heidi took me on a beach one day and said you've got to charge more you've got to put your prices up <laughs> and i said oh I, I don't know i don't know i don't know but yeah they, they, they gradually gradually went up um apparently somebody had done to that to her one day so uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah well if you're not if no one's complaining about the price you're not charging too much is something i was taught at one point so. well, that's right well I, you know we're saving we're saving if she gets a runner in she spends an hour with a runner and it'll cost them 200 dollars. but she'll give them all the videos that come from the book for a foot program she'll find out exactly what's wrong with them she'll strengthen them up and they won't have to come back yeah she says you can either do that or i'll sell you a pair of orthotics for 700 dollars <laughs> That cost me that cost me a hundred dollars and it's probably going to screw up your knees anyway you know that's she's got a bit of a doc martin streak there you know doc martin the program but yeah so financially you, you give away a bit but we live cheaply and um we've both built up some savings over the years so uh yeah um because the book was actually very quite expensive for us to actually produce with all the editing fees and and that sort of thing I think it's probably a book owes us about, I think it's $29,000 at the moment. So it's going to take us a good few years to get that back. But it, it, it's really something we wanted to do. It's what we love doing. We love helping runners. I'm really enjoying the promotion of the book and got a Facebook group with people all over the world who are putting up videos and saying, oh, how am I going? And you're saying, oh, well, try a bit more of this, a bit more of that. And it's a big, becoming a big family. So we're really, uh, really enjoying it. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, now... Um... Couple of questions. Where can people find out, uh, or where can people get hold of the book if they want to? 
And if people want to get in contact with you, what's the best way of doing so? Well, probably the easiest thing is to remember Older Yet Faster. I just go to olderyetfaster.com. And there we have listed everywhere you can get the book. You can either, you can buy the, we have um, three or four versions of the same content, but we have a color version, which is the most expensive, which you can, you can get directly from us or from Amazon. Uh, although the Amazon Australian one, I wouldn't bother because we've got problems getting the pricing right for them, the way your Amazon work. Anywhere in the world, basically you can get the copy that we've done with the black and white internal pages designed to be that way for a Kindle. So it's absolutely excellent, but it's much better priced. And that's Amazon. So Amazon is the main source. If people are in India, there's an Indian publisher as well, but uh, they'll find it through Amazon. But basically, if they go to oldyetfaster.com, that lists all the places they can get the book, um, including the website. Fantastic. And if they're in Sydney, they can uh, they can come and see you for personal coaching as well? Uh, absolutely, yes. Yep. Um, they'll find me on keithbatemancoaching.com. But yes, they're, they're welcome. Or if not, in Sydney, I have people, I've had people travel from uh, Adelaide and Perth and uh, New Zealand. And yeah, so uh, I hope I did a good job with them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So not, the, yeah. the last question I'm going to ask you is what, uh, what I get all the guests on the show to do is throw out a challenge for the listeners. So what's a challenge that you can uh, – suggest the listeners try something they can do over the next week that uh, that will make a difference to them and I suppose given the the subject of the the conversation today is probably more going to be running focused and uh, you know something that uh, perhaps a, a technique change or a, a something they can do based on uh, on your work right okay well the problem with technique change is what I tend to do uh, well, is completely rebuild everybody, even the best runners. So it's a, it's a start from scratch system. Uh, I was uh, I did a forum, a running forum up in uh, I can't remember Port Macquarie once, and somebody said, "What tip would you give to any runner?" And years later, they said, "That's the best thing you ever said." So, and it's something I thought of while I was running him. When I changed my technique, I did it in stages. I kept thinking of different things. Try this one. Most people uh, they either lift their foot forwards or they stretch out when they're running. Try thinking of your heel of your foot catching up with you, like moving towards your hamstrings. Okay, without you actually picking it up, you never pick your feet up, but that will offset the temptation to reach forwards. Are you with me? Yep. And the other thing is um, think about your shoes and what they're doing to your body and your running. Although you might have seen uh, people in these Nike 4%, that will, I'm convinced that the spring that's in those, the carbon fiber spring, actually will improve your speed by 2, 3, or 4%. But if you're doing a four hour marathon, that means you're doing it in 350. That, as far as I'm concerned, is unacceptable. You're much better to start afresh, get your technique right, and do it easily in under three hours or, or you know, around a three-hour mark. So, you know, look at your equipment. It's not going to give you a big advantage. Yeah. So look at your equipment. Think about think about getting close to the ground. Um, if you're in a big, chunky shoe, you're more likely to rip the tendons off the top of your foot by twisting your ankle. The closer you are to the ground, the better you can run and the better you can learn and uh, the better it is for your body. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for that, Keith, and thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure to uh, to have you on the show, and it's been uh, been a really interesting discussion. 
Oh, well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad you think so. I hope your listeners uh, think so too. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Pursuit of Life. To learn more about how Knightswood House can help you live your life of adventure whilst planning your future, visit knightswood.com.au.